Our reading tonight is from Genesis chapter 37, verses 12 to 18. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I am going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. And when Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are gracing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. May God bless his word to us. Well, this evening we're continuing our series looking at the person of Joseph. Joseph in the Old Testament who inspired that musical. Hands up if you've sung in that musical, God bless you. Um, and it's one that we've perhaps known through either Philip Schofield or J.C. Donovan being in it, depending on your vintage. Uh, but any dream apparently will do. And last week we looked at when Joseph was given his coat of many colours, his splendid robe, and the tension that that set up between himself and his 11 older brothers and his younger baby brother, Benjamin. And what seems to happen is that Jacob, his dad, who had himself experienced the implications and ramifications of favoritism in his own family between him and his own brother Esau, seemingly doesn't learn any of the lessons. Because what starts to happen in Joseph's life and in Jacob's life and in the life of the brothers is the ramifications and the consequences of this favoritism. I can remember the moment. It was about 10 years ago. Um, I've been asked to speak on one of the Abernethy Family Weeks at Nethy Bridge. Abernethy Outdoor Trust have four or five centres. Uh, and uh, Kathy and I and our kids uh, were invited to go on about eight, nine of them. And uh, on the first night, there were tremendous times and we learned to do all sorts of stuff. I fell in the River Spey five times on one canoe trip. An all-time record, apparently. I fell in where nobody else has ever fallen in. Um, I, I count that as an achievement. But on the first night, uh, 10 years ago, um, Andrew Marion uh, was interviewing Kathy and myself uh, just so the guests could get to know us. And there were about 100 of us in the theatre at uh, Abernethy. And they, they asked us about our work and they asked us about where we came from. And then came this moment when Andrew, who's the operations uh, director at Abernethy, leaned in and said, you have three children. We said, yes. He said, they're aged 16, 12, and 9. We said, yes, because that was true at the time. He said, they're called Joshua, Nathan, and Iona. We said, yes. 
And then came the moment when he leaned in and said, and which one is your favorite? And I will never forget our three kids who are halfway up the theater. Each of them leant in. (laughs) They were on the edge of their seats expecting that this would be the moment when they would finally discover which of them we loved the most. Kathy and I, not being as daft as I look, looked at Andrew Marion and said, we love them all equally. Each of them came up afterwards and sidled up and said, no, really, (laughs) which one of us do you love most? Iona, even now, occasionally will sidle up to me and said, Dad, it is me, isn't it? You do love me the most. And I will say, Iona, you are my favorite daughter. Because we all know that Will Roach is actually the favorite child in our family. If you want to know who Will Roach, ask Kathy. It's a, it's a long story. But favoritism between children actually is an absolute killer because it can cause all sorts of tensions in families. And as I say, we see here in the story of Jacob and Joseph and his 11 brothers who were older than him and Benjamin, his baby brother, some of the ramifications of what happens next. Here in this story that occurs over a thousand years before the birth of Christ, Jacob has already seen the impact of parental favoritism, but unbelievably he repeats some of the same mistakes. Joseph, the long sought after child that Jacob had with the love of his life, Rachel, had obviously been picked out as his favorite. And he'd been given this special cloak, this special robe, that amazing technicolor dream coat. It wasn't probably a technicolor dream coat, but it was a distinctive robe. It was the robe of a nobleman, perhaps, or perhaps it was even Jacob's own coat that he'd given to his favorite son. And it marked Joseph out. It meant that everybody else knew that he was the dad's favorite. There was no need for an interview to be gone through as to who was the favorite. Joseph was the favorite. And we saw last week that there's this incident where Joseph has these two dreams and stupidly tells his brothers initially that they're all going to bow down in front of him as he tells them about the dream of the sheaves of wheat. And then even more stupidly, he tells his, his dad and his brothers when he has a dream about the sun and the moon and the stars all bowing down that one day everybody will bow down to him. Joseph at this stage is a 16, 17-year-old, precocious, spoilt, arrogant teenager who has a spiritual gift but is absolutely clueless as to how it should be used. Jacob sends Joseph off one day to bring a report back on his brothers. And we're told that the report that Joseph brings back is not a favorable report. And we're told that the brothers can't even find it within themselves to speak a kind word about Joseph. Time goes by. And we pick up the story in the reading that Roderick read for us a few moments ago, where again Jacob decides to send Joseph out to visit his brothers. Now we immediately realize a couple of things from that. The first thing is that Jacob has learned nothing. 
Jacob has learned diddly squat because firstly, he's kept Joseph back with himself. He has to send Joseph to be with Jacob, to be with his brothers because his brothers are working the fields. Well, he has to send him because Joseph isn't there. Joseph has been kept at home with Jacob, his dad. So he still hasn't learned. But secondly, he compounds that mistake by then sending again Joseph to bring a report on his brothers. And we all know how siblings love when one of them sneaks on one of the others. Remember, perhaps, if you've got a brother or a sister, what it felt like when they told on you. I'm sure it never happened in your family. It certainly did in mine. When my sister confessed and dropped me right in it. This is the stuff of normal family life. And yet, Jacob hasn't learned. And he sends Joseph again on what is quite a dangerous journey. He sends him 60 miles to this place called Shechem. And Shechem is the place where, if you look back the previous chapter, their sister Dinah had been raped and where, in revenge, the brothers had killed all the men in that particular area and they'd raided all the property in that area. And that's where Jacob sends Joseph to go and find his brothers. But when he gets there, they're not as daft as they look because he can't find them. They haven't stayed there because it's dangerous for them to be there because of what happened with their sister and the retribution that they took. And so they've moved on to this place called Dothan, 15 miles further on from Shechem. So he's now walked 75 miles in order to find his brothers. That's quite a long way. But the bad news is, verse 18, they see him coming. Now, just think about it. How did they see his coming? How did they see him coming? How did they see him in the distance? So that in verse 18, it says, here comes the dreamer. And they're not affirming his spiritual gift in saying that. They can see him in the distance because of that flipping coat. That badge of honour. That badge that says, I'm better than you. That robe that says, my dad loves me more than he loves you. Is the thing that hits them as this person, this figure in the distance, starts to come nearer. Maybe it wasn't a multicoloured, amazing, technicolour dream coat, but it was perhaps a purple robe. That was the most expensive dye in the ancient world. It was a rich robe, maybe purple, maybe scarlet. Everybody else wore sort of brown, beige. Happens to people when they get over 70. They all start to wear beige. Don't know why, but they do. Everyone else is wearing beige. But then comes Joseph in that flipping coat and his brothers can see him in the distance and their first thought is not a kind one. That precious coat of many colours that says that he is better than they are. Talk about a red rag to a bull. And their immediate response, verse 20, let's kill him. Let's kill him. They hate him by now so much with a vengeance. Let's kill him. So they come up with plan A, death. 
Then they come, well, according to Reuben, the oldest brother, who tries to intervene. He said, let's just throw him into a well. Let's throw him into a cistern. And Reuben hopes that when they've all gone, he can go back and get Joseph out of the well and, and save his life. But they grab Joseph. They stripped him. The first thing that they do, verse 23, they stripped him of his robe. That's significant. It's the first thing that they do. They take the very thing that, that gives Joseph the impression that he's better than they are. They take the very symbol of what sets Joseph apart. They take the very thing that says that he is special and they strip him of that robe and they throw him in the well. And then, in what is quite a calculating move, the Bible tells us that they sit down to eat. They've just taken Joseph. They're intending to kill him. They strip him of his robe and then they sit down to eat. That is quite a calculated move. Quite callous to sit there and eat a meal while a few yards away your little brother is in a well where you've taken him and thrown him. It tells us something of the state of their hearts, perhaps, that that's what's going on in their minds, in their thinking. But then plan C comes along. We're told that some Midianite merchants pass by and the brothers see the chance to sell Joseph into slavery. And so for 20 shekels or pieces of silver, they sell him into slavery. All the way through the Old Testament, there are, if you like, prototypes of Jesus. Figures that, that evoke something of what happens to the Messiah when he comes. And here's Joseph, one of those prototypes who sold into slavery for 20 pieces of silver. It's quite deliberate. Think about Judas selling out Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So Joseph is sold into slavery. The Midianites take him off into Egypt, and we'll look at that next week. The brothers go back home. They've got the robe, they dip it in some goat's blood, and they take it back to Jacob, the dad. And even now, they're economical with the truth. It's not that what they say is wrong, it's just not the whole story. We found this, they say. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. It's true. They have found it. Well, they found it because they threw it there. Examine it to see whether it's your son's robe. Note again what they don't say. They don't say, examine it to see if it's our brother's robe. Examine it to see it if your son's robe. Jacob is heartbroken. Jacob is distraught. His favorite son, he believes now, is dead. He said, a wild animal has, has taken my son and killed him. And, and what am I going to do? And he, 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 he tears his own robe and just starts to weep. And the passage concludes by telling us that, that, that Jacob's mourning went on for days and weeks and months. 
But again, here's something even more calculating. Jacob's other sons, Joseph's brothers, who know that Joseph isn't dead, who know that he's alive somewhere in slavery, they bring their wives, and day after day, and week after week, and month after month, they weep with Jacob. They weep with Jacob. They join in his mourning. You have to be quite cold and calculated and calculating to actually compound someone else's grief. When actually, with just a word, they could have said, it's not true. Joseph's actually alive. But if they'd said that, then everything would started to have unraveled. The story would have been found out. Their guilt would have been revealed. And so day after day, week after week, month by month, they come and they weep with their dad, even though they know he's weeping for a son who is still alive. Two quick points to pull out. What do we see in this story that might speak to us? Well, I think the first thing, if we're realistic and if we're honest, is what has been described as the corrosive dynamic of sin. The corrosive dynamic of sin. Just if you look through last week's story and this week's story, we have, if you like, almost a case book, a case study of the effects of sin. It begins with jealousy. It begins with Joseph being arrogant. It begins with favoritism from a dad to his favorite son. It starts to seep into the hearts and minds of the brothers as they can't even say a kind word about Jacob. And bit by bit, minute by minute, Incident by incident, conversation by conversation, reaction by reaction, attitude by attitude, collusion with collusion. It ends up, not just with them not being able to say a kind word, but actually it descends in a sort of spiral down to the point where they actually want to murder him. That's quite a jump from not being able to say a kind word about your brother. And then it becomes callous, sitting and eating while your brother is at the bottom of a well. And then it becomes calculated, selling him off for 20 pieces of silver. Judah, one of the brothers, even starts to rationalize what they're doing. He says, yeah, let's, let's sell him into slavery. Let's not kill him because, after all, He is our flesh and blood. He is our brother. Brackets. We're doing him a favour by not killing him. We're doing him a favour by selling him into slavery. He rationalises what they're doing. And then when they meet their dad, they tell only half the truth and hide the rest and begin to tell more and more and more lies to compound their actions, weeping and pretending to grieve 
in a way that's very cruel. And if we're honest, that is how sin operates in your life and in my life. Something begins that is just small. It seems harmless. It seems so minor. But it just begins to take you away from the straight line that God wants you to walk in. And the further along that line you go, the more off kilter you get. And you begin to have to tell lie after lie to yourself or to other people. You begin to rationalise to yourself that what you're doing is okay. That what you're doing really isn't that significant. That what you're doing really isn't that bad. At least it's not as bad as the other person. And sin, that is quite subtle and is quite seductive and quite sinister, starts to eat away at you, eat away at your soul, eat away at who you are, eat away at how you think of yourself, eat away at how you think about other people, and fundamentally, how you think about God. Most times that you and I sin... It's because we decide deliberately not to remember who God is. Sometimes we forget, but if we're honest, it's because we deliberately choose not to remember. Because if we chose to remember who God is, we wouldn't do most of the things that we do. We rationalise it. We become quite callous, we become quite calculated, we excuse ourselves, just like the brothers excuse themselves. Well, at least we're doing him a favour by selling him into slavery. We're not going to kill him, even though they were going to kill him. And then the second thing is that God is in charge. Seems a strange thing to say. But decades from when this incident occurs, when Joseph is sold into slavery, decades after he's gone into Egypt, where he's taken by the Midianites and sold into the house of Potiphar that we'll look at next week, years after he spent time in prison, years after when he's become the prime minister of Egypt, Years after when he's rescued the the nation of Egypt through a time of famine. Years after when he's led his own family to, to go from the wilderness into Egypt and to be looked after. Years later, in the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis chapter 50, we're told that something happens. That the brothers have feared every single day since this incident occurred. Their father, Jacob, dies. And when their father, Jacob, dies, the first response, the first response that the brothers have is to go and find the prime minister of Egypt, Joseph, their brother. And they fall on their knees and they beg for forgiveness for having sold him into slavery decades before. And what becomes apparent is that 
week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade, the brothers have lived the rest of their lives in fear. Fear that when their dad dies, that's the time that Joseph is going to take his revenge. And Joseph is simply waiting. Waiting for the moment when Jacob is dead, for when he can take his revenge. And they're so scared. And imagine what it was like. And again, imagine how sin has eaten away at their hearts and their minds and their relationship with each other. That For decades, they've lived with that fear, that haunting fear, that one day, and they know it's going to happen because their dad's old. They know that one day he's going to die. And then it happens. And he dies. And their first reaction is not to grieve for their dad. Their first reaction is self-preservation. Because they've lived in fear for decades. And they go and plead with Joseph, please don't kill us, please don't kill us, please don't kill us. And Joseph replies with this amazing statement in Genesis 50, verses 19 to 21. He replies with remarkable grace and kindness and love. And he says these words. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. To accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. You see, what they don't know is that Joseph has forgiven them. He hasn't forgotten what they did. That's not what forgiveness is. He's remembered what they did, but he's forgiven them. And he's chosen to forgive them in order that what they did doesn't have any power over him. So that his reaction, his response, is not to look for revenge, but actually to weep because he realizes that they have lived in such fear for the whole of their lives. And there is Joseph, who by now is much older, and who has learned to use the gift that God has given him, the, the gift of interpreting dreams. And he's now a person of grace and mercy and kindness and wisdom. And it is this paradox that often God will use something that's painful, something that appears to us and may well be suffering, and God doesn't cause it to happen, but God takes the fact that it has happened to do something in us, to mature us, to change us, to refine our character. You see, the reality is that God is far more concerned than who we are than what we do. He's far more passionate about our character than he is our achievements or our accomplishments. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, you might speak in the tongues of men and of angels, 
You might be able to do miracles, you might be able to do all sorts of things. But if you haven't got love, it's worth nothing. And actually the fruit of the Spirit, the character of Jesus, love, joy, patience, kindness, <coughs> faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that is much more important. The fruit of the Spirit is more important than the gifts of the Spirit. And even if you've been given a gift of the Holy Spirit, what you need to learn is how to use that gift. God might show you something. You might have the gift of wisdom. You might have the gift of uh, prophecy. But just because God tells you about something or God tells you about somebody, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's right for you to tell that person. It might just be that because you know about that situation, all God's calling you to do is to pray. He's not calling you to go and tell that person that you know about that situation so that it makes you look more spiritual. That's not what it's about, but that's what Joseph was doing when he was a teenager. It was all about him. He has to learn through years in prison, as we'll look at next week, that maturity, that, that real character is more important than anything he can do for God and anything that God has called him to do. A few years ago, I came across a book called The Making of a Leader by Robert Clinton. And uh, Robert Clinton saw that there were five or six different stages that people, that often God uses in leadership, go through. And uh, one of the things that again and again Clinton noticed is that leaders, in particular, often will go through times of suffering, painful situations, because God wants to change them. God wants to refine them. And if that's true about people that God uses in leadership, it is also true about Christians, full stop. I would guarantee, almost, that if there is somebody who is a Christian that you admire, Somebody whose faith you want to, to aspire to be like, you think, I wish I could be like Mark Cameron. Don't giggle. <laughs> that's, that's his mate. Well, it used to be his mate. But there's somebody that you, you, you look up to. Okay, maybe not. Um, but there's somebody you think, you know, I want to be like that person. They're so mature as a Christian, they're so wise. I would guarantee that if you spent any time with that person, it's more than likely that they have gone through a times and times of pain and suffering. Times perhaps when God seemed miles away. Times when they questioned the sovereignty of God. Times when they wondered whether God was really who he claims to be. Times when they prayed and it seems nothing happened. Times when they had to wrestle with their faith and decide whether they believed it or not. Because God will quite often use those situations for good. That was Joseph's story at the end of Jacob's life. He could say, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what he had always intended, the saving of many lives. So this evening... We meet around this table. 
This table that helps us to remember the person who was betrayed above all. The person who was sold, if you like, into the slavery of sin for 30 pieces of silver. The person who knew what it was in the Garden of Gethsemane to say to his heavenly Father, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from my lips. You see, if even Jesus had to go through that trial, why do we think that you and I are somehow going to be spared it? Maybe it is that corrosive dynamic of sin that if you're honest, you need to acknowledge this evening. Something is going on in your life. It's a habit. It's a way of thinking. It's a way of behaving. It's a way of reacting. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's an attitude. And it started off so harmless. But actually it's grown and grown and grown and then came the time of rationalizing it to yourself that it's okay it's pretty harmless it's all right everybody else is doing it and it's just taking you down that corrosive dynamic and actually it's been eating away at you and eating away at your relationship with god and eating away at your relationship with other people it's eaten away even as to how you think about yourself Well, we come to this table and we can bring all that we are, all of the mess, all the stuff, some of which we think is hidden, but actually God knows all about it. And we can bring it to this table because it's precisely that sort of stuff that this table is all about.